0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 29th, 2021. I'm John Bodhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, which you can find at our new URL, www.commentary.org, where we offer you a few free reads before we ask you to subscribe with us as me, me, us. <laughs> Losing control of my verbiage here. Uh, Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So just to mix it up and not to start with COVID uh, announcement that the small infrastructure deal by by small I mean it's a billion dollars a trillion dollars not that it's small uh, it's still like you know it five years ago this would have been the largest bill in the history of mankind uh, that's 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 where we're going with this. Spending like we have so adjusted the Overton window on spending that a trillion dollars now seems like a relatively modest spending bill compared to other proposals and other things that have happened. Nonetheless, trillion dollars in actual infrastructure spending. Um, uh, the Senate passed a uh, allowed it to go forward, uh, with a very interesting a uh, 67 to 32 vote among those voting to move the bill to consideration on the floor. What was Senate majority uh, Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell. Um, and so evidently it's going to pass. Uh, there are two interesting things I want to go into and, and talk about. One of which is how it's being paid for, which is kind of interesting and comic. And the other is what, uh, Everybody has been worried over, or people either have been worried over or slavering over the possibility that the existence of this bill and the existence of this idea are simply, uh, it's like a a kind of adjunct to the passage of this giant $3.5 trillion Biden budget, wish list, socialist, statist, you know, uh, monstrosity. Uh, but uh, kristen cinema came out last night and said she opposed the 3.5 trillion dollar bill while she of course supports and is one of the senators involved in the negotiation on the smaller infrastructure bill and it only takes one democrat to kill the bill one all it's a 50-50 senate all 50 democrats have to vote for the 3.5 trillion dollar bill assuming all republicans vote against it and then kamala harris breaks the tie and the bill becomes law under the budget reconciliation rules that mean it does not it is not subject to the filibuster so uh the the panic which was well why is why are republicans negotiating over this when they're just being handmaidens to the larger bill uh this Something interesting happened here. We don't know where this all comes from, but the fact that Cinema announced this on the day that they announced the the, the, the small the skinny infrastructure bill uh, I think is pretty striking and seems to indicate that she did this deliberately in order to say, "I want this bill. We are not going to do that
1: bill." Uh, what do you make of it, Noah? I don't know what I make of it necessarily, <laughs> save for the fact that I think um, <clears throat> people like us and the right generally was more skeptical that of the palatability of a three point five trillion dollar infra- fake infrastructure bill, a uh, social infrastructure, whatever, family infrastructure, whatever you want to call it, um, the redefinition effort to call you know whatever they wanted infrastructure had failed miserably months ago. Um, so you knew that the just the rebranding was going to be difficult. To say nothing of the fact that spending still matters. Spending still matters. It doesn't matter to the press. It doesn't matter to progressives. Those are the people who define our our national conversation around whatever um, you know we're we're trying to pass here. But even in this infrastructure bill, and John, I know you want to go get into this a little bit, but this is the only thing that interests me. Is the pay fors here are as you say really fascinating because. It is, you know, mostly paid for. It's not deficit spending per se, and it doesn't entirely rely on dynamic scoring, eg.. growth, economic growth, creating more revenue and taxes, therefore paying for this thing eventually down the road, which is a scheme that's really obnoxious, but is pretty common in Washington. It pays for itself, for the most part, based on spending that they already passed. Does anybody remember that we passed several trillion dollars worth of spending last year? And it's still kind of sitting around undispersed. I mean, this is the sort of thing that doesn't matter, that isn't relevant to our cultural arbiters or political arbiters who are, by and large, far, much farther left than the rest of the country. But it really does to the voters that they presume to speak for.
0: Okay, so on that question of the pay-fors, we have a couple of interesting aspects of it, one of which is they are going to repurpose all kinds of money that was apparently authorized For unemployment insurance at the state level that states refused to pay out. And so it's uh, the, you know, which uh, the states that refuse to pay it out, of course, are the states that are that that aren't going through the same kinds of horrendous and horrific labor shortages that the states that are paying out both the federal and the state three hundred dollars a week unemployment insurance are paying. That's
1: number it's not one. Not just unemployment insurance. Yeah. I want to <laughs> introduce this yes. briefly from the from the AP write up of, of the bill's particulars. Um, tapping it's also tapping about two hundred and five billion in unspent COVID nineteen relief aid. And just as a parenthetical, Congress has provided about four point seven trillion dollars in emergency assistance right. during the pandemic. Well, five trillion dollars yes. already. Yes. On top, now we're talking about another three point five, and they're like, ah, yeah, and whatever. Okay, well, a why, couple but, of trillions. Well,
2: hey, go ahead. Well, but then why are you saying spending matters? So to to whom? No, does it no, matters? he's it saying matters it now it matters. because he's, it's
1: it's putting downward political pressure on the app. There's no appetite for this kind of spending in in the American body politic. It's it's not it's not discussed because it's not something that interests the press. It's not something that interests um, progressive Democrats in Congress. But the sentiment against excessive spending for for its own sake is what is putting downward political pressure on uh, on the passage of this supplemental reconciliation bill. That's the problem here: is the spending, not what they want.
0: Right? Okay, but we need to. We really do need to separate these strands because we have the proposed three point five trillion dollar budget reconciliation, which is the wish list, and then we have the one trillion dollar infrastructure bill, which is the bipartisan bill negotiated by the bipartisan commission, which is the one where there are these paid for, it has to pay for itself. So how does it pay for itself? So it's interesting. Number one, there's a whole bunch of money that comes from the, uh, the unemployment insurance that isn't being spent. And then there is all this money from, from other aspects of the COVID relief bill that haven't been spent and a huge amount of money that is going to come from some gimmick where they're going to require reporting on cryptocurrency sales and taxation. Now, why is this interesting? Well, because first of all, um, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. If they're going to use money that has already been authorized for COVID relief to pay for this because apparently there was too much money authorized for COVID relief. If you can just take that and say, Oh, we'll just use this pot of money for that. Then obviously there was too much money in the COVID relief bill that can be repurposed in this fashion. And therefore it's good that they're not looking for other pay fors They actually killed the idea of hiring lots of IRS workers to sort of, you know, dig through the taxes of everybody in America to try to, you know, wring out more tax dollars to pay for it. That was something that that got killed. A a couple of other very good things got killed. There was going to be this infrastructure bank in which the federal government would provide money to help pay for infrastructure projects as a seed. Now, I don't even know what this means since – a bank for what? And it was going to be like $60 billion. And the Republicans were like, I don't know what this is for and who's going to run it and how it's going to work. And so the Democrats said, okay, fine. It's probably was like, probably some proposal in, you know, a, you know, a liberal, some liberal version of, you know, national affairs or some, you know, Brookings paper on how this would help with infrastructure. Um, but, I mean, this is actually I think a slightly heartening development that they're they're using already authorized money instead of going to the going to the well for new money for this infrastructure bill, which is clearly gonna pass right they got sixty seven votes to advance it to the floor of the Senate it's gonna pass um that's that's so uh is it a bad bill or is it a good bill? Does anybody have an opinion on whether or not this is a good thing or a
1: bad thing? Nobody. It's just a thing. Uh (laughs) I mean, I've struggled to to make a value judgment around, you know, dispersing sums to States for the purpose of refurbishing roads and bridges and public transit and freight rail and electric vehicle charging stations. I mean, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen eventually probably has to happen. Um, you know, there's a, a line of argumentation on the right that, you know, infrastructure is not crumbling. And it's true. It's not crumbling everywhere. But nevertheless, um, you know, this does have to be financed. And the federal government financing it is probably part of its remit. And so, you know, the, the notion here that's going to be wildly popular among the public is probably overinflated. But it's it's the sort of thing that government is supposed to do, at least, as opposed to, you know, creating a, a vast network of childcare professionals in government-run facilities, that's a totally new redefinition of the social compact. This is within the existing framework of the social compact that we understand it.
3: But this is also something that the Biden administration is going to use to argue that he is an effective bipartisan leader. Look, he works. He negotiates with Republicans, unlike that previous guy. You can really trust him to understand how the politics works. Looks how look how well he did. Um, you know, governance, governance. The adults are in charge. This is it. This is going to be his prime example going into the midterm elections of the. The Democrats' ability to govern, um, which, although we should talk about what the, some of the responses to Cinema's actions, which perhaps uh, are an argument for how they can't govern very well in the House. But I think it will be used effectively by the Biden administration for that sort of messaging as well.
0: I mean, I don't see why that's un- undeserved necessarily. No,
3: exactly. No, I'm not I saying mean, it isn't. I, is
0: I un- don't mean. think it helps. I think it only helps Biden, by the way. Right. I mean, it, hel- it will help individual... Democratic senators and Republican senators who can go back to their uh, constituencies, statewide constituencies, not, you know, not either uh, incredibly progressive, crazy base constituencies or Trumpian constituencies and say, look, you sent me to Washington to work across the aisle to get things done. And I, I did that after years of nothing getting done. It's been seven or eight years since there was a major bipartisan bill We did this. I'm proud of it. And what's more, Republicans will be able to say, we cut out this infrastructure bank. We eliminated most of the spending that was going to go this astonishing 500,000 charging stations for Teslas, which which was a staggering thing that was happening because if, in fact, the Tesla or the electric car is popular – and is something that people need charging stations for, those charging stations will be created in three weeks by entrepreneurs at the local level who will open gas, sta- or will add charging stations to their gas stations in three weeks. We don't need federal government direct subventions Here's the thing that's funny about those. this, is,
1: as far as I understand it. If you're a Tesla owner, it's really not that hard to find a charging station. If you own any other electric vehicle, it's a nightmare. Right.
0: Well, at some point, which, there's which going to have to be a uniform to the market. standard, right? Well, so Tesla, you know, Tesla wants you to buy a Tesla-specific charging station for your garage. So it's you know, it's a it's it's um, it's proprietary technology or something. I assume there'll be some kind of a dongle or something like that where you'll be able to charge a battery. You could charge it with another thing that makes it possible to charge a battery. And my point is that this is this delusion that the only thing that can happen when you have technological uh, innovation is that government needs to pay for every part of it. If it works, if the, if the electric car becomes the substitute or is on the way to becoming the substitute for the fossil fuel car, um, you know, fortunes are going to be made by individual private small businessmen who want to, you know, who want to, make some money by you could put a charging station anywhere they're all there they're in parking lots you could put one you know you could put one in front of your if you have you know you could put one in a in a in a shopping mall parking lot there are in shopping mall parking lots it doesn't whatever it is as long as there's money to be made from it people will make money from it so republicans will be able to say that they took the original infrastructure bill and they shaped it into something that is an infrastructure bill And if you are, you know, a libertarian, you don't like this kind of spending, you're not going to like it. But I think as Noah says, this is actually something that government is supposed to do, is supposed to maintain the upkeep of our national highway system um, of, uh, you know, we have a rail system in the United States for national security reasons, not just because we're trying to support the you know the rail system it's one of the you know it's the main way coal uh I know people democrats don't like coal but it's the main way the coal is shipped across the united states is on is on trains and so we we have to maintain that and various other aspects of our of our of our national grid that is part and parcel of this uh i don't know if it's good or bad i'm not an, i'm not an expert on this kind of i assume there's a lot of garbage in it I assume there's an astonishing amount of garbage in it. There always is. And so, you know, if if I had my druthers and I were, you know, and I had a pen, I'm sure that I could sit down, you know, with, with our friends at Cato and AEI and all that and come up with the things I would want to cut. But nonetheless, we've gone from three and a half trillion to six trillion dollars down to a trillion dollars in a bill that is going to get bipartisan support. So, that's not nothing. It is something Biden can claim. It's something that the people who vote for it can claim. And what's more, people who oppose it can test out the proposition that the public isn't going to like it by running against them on this. And we'll see how, we'll see what the electoral benefits or consequences are. We just don't, don't know what what they are yet. Um, but the cinema thing is, okay, So so two things. Uh, our friends uh, in the in the squad have responded to the infrastructure bill uh, by complaining that everybody who negotiated it is white.
3: Yes, uh, first Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tweeted out a picture of the bipartisan infrastructure group and said, "A lot of times, quote unquote." bipartisan agreements, scare quotes, are just as defined by who people in power agree to exclude than include. And then, and she also went on television and complained that they were all white. And then, um, of course, Cori Bush, uh, never, never missing an opportunity to uh, make everything about race, uh, jumped on with a tweet that said, you know, negotiations so white. Which is so, first of all, I just I obviously I have a problem with both of these uh, congressmen's approach to, to how they do their job. Um, but from a from a clearly democratic standpoint, their argument makes no sense. These senators, particularly even cinema, might be white. Um, we do, by the way, I guess I should mention still live in a majority white country, although I guess we're not supposed to mention that, but. Um, However, they represent more minorities than AOC and Cory Bush combined in their districts. As senators, they represent entire states that have very diverse populations. And if if the issue here was about race, their constituents would be responding and will vote them out next time. But the idea that an ad hominem attack about race is the correct response to a legislative uh uh, statement that a senator makes just shows you how debased that debate has become among the squad. All they can do is attack, and they do it on Twitter. It's not an argument; it's an attack.
2: But okay, then go ahead. <clears throat> then it's it's clear, very clearly a good thing. If we weren't sure if it was a good thing or not,
3: <laughs> right? Look, seal of there black, right there. <laughs> there
0: are black uh, senators. This was a voluntary. Anybody could right. have been part of this negotiating committee. It was voluntary. They would have had, they wanted as many people as would possibly join them to join them. Tim Scott didn't join them. Cory Booker didn't join them. It was their choice. No one was excluded. Everybody was going to be included. Anyone who wanted to be included would be included. That's why it's so despicable for, you know, AOC to claim that minority voices were excluded the exclusion was done by the minority voices themselves because they didn't want to have their fingerprints on it or they didn't want to be associated with it for whatever reason. Either they really either, as you know, in the case of Tim Scott, really opposed it and didn't have anything to say. Or in the case of Cory Booker, he wants to keep his up. You know, he's keeping his powder dry for, you know, the next time he runs as a vegan boyfriend of a of a second rank movie star uh, for president. So you know, I mean, that's, so there was that. And then we had uh Peter DeFazio, who is not a minority, uh head of the Progressive Caucus or something like that. He's got some weird title like that, saying he was going to vote against the small infrastructure bill because it's garbage and it doesn't do anything that we need done. It's something like that. So there is this threat because the Right now, the majority in the House, I think, is seven. I mean, there's weird. There are a couple of seats unfilled. I noticed when people reported on the results of the Texas special election uh, that uh, I think there are three open seats currently. It's often the case there are 435 congressmen, so you don't even sort of know about this. But somebody resigned, somebody this. They're waiting for a special election somewhere else. So I don't know what the majority is. It's Five, it's seven, it's three, who knows what it is. But if Peter DeFazio can get enough people to oppose the bill in the House and screw Nancy Pelosi, not that it's her bill, it could go down in the House, the, the skinny infrastructure bill after, and then really stick a dagger in, in Joe Biden's back. Because Joe Biden wants this. Joe Biden, this is the fulfillment of his most important campaign promise, right? Which was a return to normalcy in Washington. Not just a return to normalcy about Trump, though that was the lion's share of it, but a return to normalcy in the possibility of good, the good working order of politics, things, people being able to work together the way he was able to work with so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. and so if the House leftists do this, they will be castrating the leader of their party in the president of the United States going into the midterms. It's a very interesting.
1: And play. they would be advancing Donald Trump's interests. For some reason, the people around Donald Trump have decided this is a hill to die on there. The president has put out statements opposing this infrastructure bill saying he's going to primary anybody who votes for it. Lord knows how. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to do after the day after your preferred candidate loses one of those primary races. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, you know, he wanted an infrastructure bill. He didn't get it. So he's going to make sure that he'll do whatever he can to make sure his successor doesn't. And if progressives, you know, torpedo it, that would be just fine with the MAGA right. And, you know, I mean, it might be fine with a lot of people on the
0: right who just don't like massive government spending. And I would say, I don't like massive government spending either, but the, but there are two forms of massive government spending that are defensible in terms of you know annual or you know sort of chosen expenditures. one is the defense budget and the other is infrastructure spending. Um, by the way, oh the other funny part about this is that um, uh, one of the other ways they're gonna save money in the in the skinny infrastructure bill is postponing a Trump era, a Trump uh, renovation to spending on prescription drugs. Uh, I don't quite understand how this works, but, you know, Trump had required or somehow it had gotten through in the Trump administration that beginning this year, if you if drug companies were going to offer rebates on medication, those rebates had to be applied at the cash register at the drugstore. Rather than you have to send in a, you know, you have to send in this and that, you know, like they, they make it deliberately hard to get the rebate the way rebates often are like, you know, you got to send in a picture of the prescription and the this and the bottle and the, and then get, you'll, you'll get your money back. And they're like, no, no, no. Here's, and this was a bipartisan reform, right? Like, get the, get the rebate at the cash register. Apparently, by postponing that, they're claiming they're going to save thirty billion dollars. I have, I, I, or get thirty billion. I have no idea how this works. I don't understand how how intruding in the rebate process at the cash register at a drugstore is going to, you know, nationwide is going to is going to toed up to thirty billion dollars in uh, federal savings. But nonetheless, there it is. So there's a kind of weird thing where. They actually are are killing a consumer friendly um, reform that uh, no wonder Trump is mad because he, you know, this is something I'm sure he, you know, didn't have the sl- foggiest idea about, but he always wanted to say, ah, it's bad what the drug companies are doing. So this was one way of of dealing with that. And with that, let me talk to you about fastgrowingtrees.com. Yeah. Uh, you got to skip the big box stores now. Like, what do you want to go there and find some bush that's been sitting there on the shelves or whatever, head to fastgrowingtrees.com. You can do it from your house. It's the world's largest online nursery. You don't have to wait in lines and dig through a lackluster selection. If you just go to fastgrowingtrees.com, you can choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants, expertly curated to thrive in your area, delivered to your door in one or two days. Are you looking for shade? Are you looking for privacy? Maybe you want a fruit tree or just added color for your yard. Every plant from fastgrowingtrees.com is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. This is the better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard. Planting season is here. So join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com plus The 30-day Alive and Thrive Guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting now through July 31st. I mean, we're talking two days here, people. July 31st is Saturday. This is Thursday. So act now. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um. So uh where are we? Where are we with the with the COVID response stuff that broke uh you know a day and a half ago?
3: I right, I'm, show me the data. That's I think the point. Show, right. show me right. the data. Okay, well let's let's uh
0: let's let's break that down. What data are we talking about that we don't have?
3: Uh, a data from a study that's been vaguely waived at or cited by the CDC as being the evidence for breakthrough infections, which has been the justification for making the vaccinated mask up again um but according to the scholarly publication that this has not yet been peer-reviewed published approved for publication meaning the data is still th- there was some uh, little mini scandal uh rocketing around social media yesterday about whether it had actually been rejected and then now it's under revision or anyway it's confusing there's no clarity just like the messaging about the the masking uh it, it sows confusion in the public because they're not, they cannot very clearly point to evidence that this is actually going to stop the transmission of the virus. So it raises suspicion. I mean, so the, yeah, go ahead, Dave. The funny thing is
2: even where the, if the data were airtight, it's a terrible, it has no bearing on, on the policy that they've or on the, on the guidance, you know, Um I assumed the data was was accurate. I assume that the 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 viral load of the of the Delta variant is massive, and um, a thousand times higher, whatever the number is, than than the initial um, uh, version of COVID. But it, the 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 masking guidance still makes absolutely no sense.
1: I mean, we discussed this yesterday, but unless you're numerate, <clears throat> When you hear the CDC directors say, you know, you have a one in 20 chance of getting a breakthrough infection, then you should reflect on the idea that 5% of all vaccinated people are getting COVID and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because that doesn't reflect even my, my experience, my anecdotal experience, nor is that reflected in the data or in media. It's just a number she plucked out of the air, um, which is extremely discouraging. The problem is that people have trouble understanding this. The, the motive behind the resumption of, of mask mandates, it's hard to explain. It's hard to describe because the people who are implementing it can't describe it. They can't convince you of the logic of this. But Convincingly, if you're even mildly skeptical, they can't convince you of the logic of this, which makes it impossible to explain to anybody else. You can't articulate their argument because their argument can't be duplicated.
3: Well, and the evidence when when they are pressed on evidence, even the evidence is is suspect. Because the other thing about this paper that's currently under review, that's been the thing that's been cited uh, for the justification, was looking at vaccines that haven't been approved in the U.S. It was a study that didn't include Pfizer, Moderna, the ones that the majority of Americans are using. This is so the
0: Singapore. This is a study in Singapore, right? right? I believe, yeah,
3: or India, India or Singapore. You're right. It's no, an I think overseas. It's Singapore. Okay, overseas study using vaccines. That we are not taking to argue that we should all mask up again. I mean, you start to you. This is where we've said this many times, but this is where the conspiracy theorists start to look a little less crazy, right? I mean, follow you follow the rabbit down the hole, and it, it, and some there are aspects of truth there in terms of how the CDC and the Biden administration is talking to Americans about what they should be doing to protect themselves.
0: I think that there, if you want to give them every benefit of the doubt. And try to sort through what caused this uh, action and why they're so confused in the response. Um, you get to some very troubling possibilities, and the troubling possibilities are that are, are go to. They're terrified. They're terrified that the Delta variant is so contagious and it gets in the nose before your immune system. Can attack it, right? That's the, what apparently it multiplies in the nose. And Paul Offit, the great, uh, you know, sort of a man who is responsible for saving more children's lives than practically anybody alive, Paul Offit at the University of Pennsylvania says, look, here's what the vaccines are like. They're like having a fire extinguisher in your kitchen. You have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen, and then if something happens, you pull it off the wall and you spritz the fire and it puts it out. But that doesn't mean that it, the, the fire, there may be a fire and you may have to use the fire extinguisher. There'll be a fire first. So if there's a fire first, the question is how quickly, how fast uh, the spread can happen before your immune system kicks in and puts it out in your body. And this this apparently is the fear. The fear is that there is this period of time before your immune system kills it off that you can shed on other people, okay? So that's a very, I think that's a very commonsensical understanding of why prudence would say, start going back to mitigation strategies. But the data are not there yet that show this. That's what Christine is saying. So they're being more safe than sorry, because that's where they are. They want to say, we are doing everything we can to protect you. But they don't have to weigh the opportunity cost of a public being told to mask up again. And they they are presuming that um, every other prior that they want us to accept and that we have been conditioned to accept remains in place, primarily you need to go get vaccinated. Because if you start spreading the story that the delta that the Delta variant is making the vaccines a little bit ineffectual, at least in this weird period of time, the vaccine hesitant or the people who are, are gonna go, ah, eh, what the hell what the hell is it good for? So they 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 have a vested interest in not being clear because if they are candid, they start raising questions they don't want to raise. And you know why this is a problem? Because they haven't been candid from the get-go. And if they had been candid from the beginning and said, look, you might be better off masking, but we can't afford to have you mask because we don't have enough masks in America and we need them for healthcare workers. Instead of saying no, 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 don't mask. You don't need to mask. Masking sucks. What do you want to mask for? And then they switch it around. So then you have people in this state of total cognitive dissonance. If masking is good, why did they tell me it was bad to begin with? What do they know? What do they not know? Do they believe now that masking is good, or do they not? How can I trust them? And there's a very good piece in Slate by, I don't, that's not a phrase I often use, by Carrington Powell and Vinay Prasad. Vinay Prasad is one of the most interesting commonsensical people who writes about uh, COVID. And he talks, it's a piece about the noble lie and, and the danger of the noble lie. The noble lie, of course, being the thing that you tell people uh, because you, you, you figure they can't handle the truth and the lie is intended to have a very good result. So it's therefore noble. And this is the question about Fauci saying, uh, you know, um, here's what he here's immunity. Immunity. what he brings up. Right. No, but he said, right, uh, the noble lie in December when he said to Donald McNeil, quote, when polls said only half of Americans would take a vaccine, I was saying herd immunity would take 70, 75 percent. Then when newer surveys said 60 percent or more would take it, I thought I can nudge this up a bit. So I went to 8085. And this is what what, um, Powell and Prasad say. In his own words, Fauci nudged his target range for herd immunity to promote vaccine uptake. Even though his comments were made to influence public actions to get more people vaccinated, a noble effort, the central dilemma remains. Do we want public health officials to report facts and uncertainties transparently? Or do we want them to shape information via nudges to influence the public to take specific action. The former fosters an open and honest dialogue with the public to facilitate democratic policymaking. The second subverts the very idea of a democracy and implies that those who set the rules or shape the media narrative are justified in depriving the public of information that they may consider uh, or value differently. And here's, the, in my mind, the most important point. Aside from whether it's right to tell noble lies in the service of eliciting socially beneficial behavior, there is also the question of efficacy. Experts on infectious diseases are not necessarily experts on social behavior. Even if we accept Fauci's claim that he downplayed the importance of wearing masks because he didn't want to unleash a run on masks, we might wonder how he knew that his noble lie would be more effective than simply being honest. And that is the key here. There is a lot of manipulation of human behavior going on by Fauci, by Rochelle Walensky, by these people. Aside from the question of whether or not this is an appropriate behavior for employee, for our employees
1: to lie to us, what the hell do they know? All right. Here's the deal. <clears throat> I'm, it's a great piece. I'm very reluctant to give liberal venues credit for taking a conservative <laughs> observation that we've been saying for months. I wrote that piece in February. Yeah. It could have been written a long time ago, but you couldn't say it within a time frame that would give conservatives credit for their observation. This happens (laughs) a lot, and it's really annoying. So guess what, Slate? Welcome to the party, pal. We've been here a while. I mean,
0: to be fair, Vinay Prasad has been there. They're publishing it, but he has has been there. He's a
1: doctor. He's talking about Slate. I know, I know, I know. Nevertheless, here's a new wrinkle. Goldman Sachs estimates that a the delta variant, B the return of mitigation measures is going to uh, slow the economic recovery. This morning we got Q2 GDP numbers. Expected 8.4% growth. We got 6.5. Oh my god. Really? Oh my god is right. Yeah, no joke. No oh joke. Man. So guess what? Infrastructure spending, COVID mitigation measures, all this conflicts with the prime directive of a first term presidency, which is to get the economy going again. This is a existential conflict for the Biden administration.
3: Well, and he's he's got to be regretting that tweet that when he was a candidate. I'm not going to shut down the economy. I'm not going to shut down this and that. I'm going to shut down the virus. Like that keeps being brought up and should be constantly until he's <laughs> until tw- throughout now in 2024. Um, I will say that the noble lie part uh, and the reason that people react the way they have to this. It's not just you know conservative skeptics on social media. You know tearing apart Fauci and et cetera, et cetera. There is only one era in life where we tend to accept the legitimacy of the noble lie, and that's with children. So when the noble lie is proffered by one's government to its citizens, it is in effect treating us as children. And people do not like that. People don't like that. Even people who behave childishly do not want to be treated like children by their government.
0: Or people do like it. There are people who do like it.
1: Yeah, they're
3: called progressives.
0: well, I don't know if the, the progressives themselves like it. They like it for others, but well, this they all think we they're been, the
3: adults and they right. are the children, right? That's but
0: I think the, part of this deep. is right. So the the noble lie in this case isn't you should mask up. That is not the noble lie. The no, as I say, I think the danger here that is going on is that is that. All we hear is the vaccines are the vaccines are fantastic. This is the greatest thing ever. The vaccines are great. The vaccines are great, and they are. And but you know they're not. They they don't. They're not going to eradicate COVID, right? That's this is something we keep saying. They're not going to eradicate COVID, and there may be ways in which the in which COVID eludes the vaccine, rather than not that it not that it will make the vaccine ineffectual, but it can elude it in various ways. It's just that it will elude it, it eludes it in very small ways. It eludes it, you know, at a percentage number under, you know, under uh, one one hundredth of a percent. And therefore, that's bad because people will get sick from it. But again, are you, if you start talking this through and making people panic about the Delta variant you are going to damage the public case for the people who have not yet been vaccinated getting the vaccine because you're saying a you already don't want to get it b we don't know how effective it is you could get it could be one in it could be 5% you'll you if you get vaccinated you could still get it 5% is an incredibly small percentage right i mean it's 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 you know it's 95% you're not going to get it um, but if you're vaccine hesitant, you're going to go, ah, what, what good is it? And so they're making this public case and they are undermining the more important public case. <laughs> like, why isn't the noble lie to downplay the Delta variant? How about that? Let's go there. They love the noble lie. Don't talk about the Delta variant like it's a crisis, Tell everybody, have meetings. Have Biden bring journalists into meetings and say, stop counting case numbers. It is not helpful to have this case number count in the paper every day because it's not measuring anything. The only people who are getting tested are people who are already showing symptoms of being sick. So the percentage numbers don't make any sense. If everybody in the country tested every day, it wouldn't be a 3 or 4% positive test rate it would be a 0.4% positive test rate and everybody would stop panicking or you know whoever is panicking would stop panicking but they're not doing that they're not saying you're not being helpful they're not saying this is a bad way to measure they're saying everything ever all forms of measurement are good all forms of panic are good and all forms of rational calm you know risk assessment are 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 bad kind of like where is the risk assessment that says even if it's a 5% chance that you'll get covid that's actually that's actually a perf- that's more than an acceptable risk to take in life even though it's not 5% it's like 0.03% well yeah, I, mean-
1: I mean that's kind of a big deal <laughs> You're just like yeah, it's like 003 percent. The amount of things that are riskier in your life, in your day to day life, than contracting a breakthrough case of COVID, much less one that'll hospitalize you, uh, are innumerable.
0: But they're not even talking about hospitalizing you. They're talking about you get a breakthrough case, and then you are the secondhand. You're getting somebody else sick. You got vaccinated. You have a negligible chance of getting a breakthrough infection, and then the people who are around you would have a negligible chance of getting COVID. Because at the worst, even if it's a very infectious strain, at the worst levels at which COVID reached in the last year and a half, the infection rate was like 4, 4.5%. so you have a 5% chance and the people around you have a 4% chance let us let, if you do the regression analysis you have a you don't have a 5% chance you have a 0.03% chance and then you have a 0.01% chance of of giving it to somebody else and the entire country has to change its behavior why is that noble lie better than than if you believe that that is too dangerous why is that a better noble lie than protecting the reputation of the vaccines if what you really need is to get everybody vaccinated.
3: I I do notice it's interesting to see the uh, private companies, including the Washington Post, uh, Alphabet Inc., which is Google, um, Facebook and others are going to require their employees proof provide proof of vaccination. And there's not, in a weird way, they're they're kind of going around the rhetoric and incompetence of, of the federal government's messaging on this and just saying, okay, they look at the economic data, they look at the fact that they need men, most of their workforce to return to an office where they can get stuff done. So they're going to mandate this. And that's fine. Um, but it, but I think it's, it provides such an interesting contrast to the indecision and the muddled messaging that we've been enduring for more than a year now from the agencies that have told us they should be responsible for setting the policies that all Americans should willingly follow.
0: Um, guys, the other thing I need to talk to you about is Bolin Branch, the sheets, the great sheets, the high quality sleep that doesn't stop at your mattress. It doesn't stop at your mattress. You need comfortable sheets to get that full night's sleep that's luxurious and gets you up ready and fresh like a daisy for the day ahead. Uh, and that's Bolin & Branch. Not only are these sheets great, they're transparently sourced, they're produced in safe, fair conditions, which means you'll feel a difference and know you're making a difference. Bolin Branch started with a mission to produce high quality sheets for the market, the highest quality sheets, and make the world a better place in the process. Today, they're still the best choice for anyone who wants comfort that lasts. The Signature Hem Sheets are beloved bestsellers for good reason. They get softer with every wash. They're buttery soft, lightweight, 100% organic cotton sateen weave that's perfect for all seasons, come in a variety of colors and in all sizes from twin up to California king, and they're made to a higher standard with toxin-free processes and fair trade certification to ensure workers are paid fair living wages. To experience the best sheets you've ever held, choose Bolin Branch. You can try them worry three for thirty nights with free shipping and returns. And my listeners get an exclusive fifteen percent off your first set of sheets with promo code COMMENTARY at BolinBranch com. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H dot com. Promo code COMMENTARY. Um, can I shift gears crazily and go to sort of an uh, a, uh, an interesting? Uh, What was I going to say? An interesting uh, cultural discovery that I made last night, a movie I haven't seen in 30 years that I ended up watching on Amazon Prime and that I was kind of staggered by uh, because it shows, it's 60 years old. So it shows, it's, you know, remember when I was a kid and I was going to, like I saw Patton when I was 10, uh, 60 years earlier than that, was 1911. Like when I saw Jaws in 1975, 60 years before that was birth of a nation. So like we're talking about 60 years. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very it's a long time, but the movie is blue Hawaii. It's with Elvis. It's one of, it's one of the uh, high budget Elvis movies. At some point after Viva Las Vegas, he just made like, un- he, he was making unbelievable junk. Uh, sort of contemptible, sort of made contemptuously as cheap as possible to garner as much money as possible for Elvis and Colonel Parker. Uh, but this was made on location in Hawaii. And uh, Elvis comes back from the army. So it's reflecting real life. He's a, he's a veteran. He comes back from the army. His parents run like the Dole Fruit Company. And he is a beach bum surfer. And he doesn't want to go see his parents because they're going to insist that he go work for the fruit company and he wants to live a Hawaiian lifestyle. And this movie, the presumptions in this movie are just staggering. And uh, the most staggering, first of all, is that Angela Lansbury plays Elvis's mother. Now, she was only 10 years older than Elvis, but she plays Elvis's mother. By the way, Lansbury, this is like, I think the same year. That she was in The Manchurian Candidate, where she also played Lawrence Harvey's mother. Also, like, she was, like, seven years older than Lawrence Harvey. Anyway, the thing is, in that movie, she is a brilliant monster, you know, one of the great villain performances ever made, ever done, where she's, you know, the North Korean uh, intelligence agent who actually is her her brainwashed son's controller, Uh, astonishing performance, astonishing movie. In this, she's this Fliberty Gibbet Southern woman who, you know, like wants to control her son's life and he just wants to be a tour guide in Hawaii. (laughs) Anyway, the point is that like in this movie, she's like going around talking like this and she's got this husband she calls Daddy and everybody's constantly rolling their eyes at her character. And then at some point after she says something, you know, silly, her husband says, Sarah Lee... There are times I could wring your fool neck. And then the music goes. Like, oh, isn't that hilarious? He wants to, like, you know, beat up his wife because she's so stupid. And then there's the the house, the the house boy in Hawaii is a Japanese guy they call ping pong, and all of Elvis's Hawaiian friends do nothing but row around in long canoes singing Aloha E while they're playing ukulele's. Nineteen sixty one. Like it it's 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 racist, it's sexist, it's like you can see where women's why lit women's lib happened. And I just I uh, I had this experience like watching or listening to stuff like Rat Pack stuff where you can't believe the way they talked about women. You can't
3: Casual misogyny was actually a thing. <laughs> it,
0: yeah, it was. It was a defining and dominating characteristic. And Abe and I have talked about this. That in in the high board and high phone literature of the day, Mailer, Updike, Bellow, Roth, the misogyny is just sort of the point, like. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Bello, uh, whom I, uh, whose writing I love, basically got angry. Every novel came out of his rage at some wife or other who is just depicted in this horrible way. Um, you know, Updike's, you know, Updike's women are murderous, witchy, they kill their children, you know, they drown their children by mistake because they're drunk. Uh Mailer, you know, Mailer writes about the revivifying qualities of killing your wife in an American dream. Like, this is a real thing. Like, this was the cultural voice. And it's sort of like this moment where, you know, we, a lot of us complain about, you know, the progressive assumptions of our time and the horrible, you know, acceptance of these rules changing or rules denying things. But on the other hand, like, uh, there was a lot bad that... There was a lot weird and bad about the way the culture talked about itself, or popular culture talked about itself.
3: Yeah, and something ukuleles couldn't even hide, right? That's the. Although I yeah. will say, I think that the 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 extreme on the progressive side now uh, is is in some ways um, allows them not to see the through line there. There's still plenty of misogynistic lyrics and say, oh, rap music, <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> where women yeah. are never called anything but something that begins with a B or a C. Um, there's there's plenty of casual cultural misogyny that still occurs, but we we choose not to see it in certain venues where identity politics has overtaken the framework for discussing it.
2: Well, not only that, <clears throat> I, I'm certain that uh, 60 years from now, um someone will look at like the the entertainment artifacts of of today and say wow like the 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 2020s were weird that was a weird time you know like everyone's <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you know and yeah,
0: the, you know yeah. a, you know
2: every conversational aside is about yeah. you know the awfulness of 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 one's race or or country
0: yeah
3: but they'll have Noah's book as a guide.
0: There you go. That's right. Noah's so no, forthcoming edit. book that he just I'm got the it. edits on. I'm sorry, Noah. That's as he was saying, it's, <laughs> the, it's the worst the lowest day. Point. It's a tough time. Yeah, it is a tough yeah, time in the life time. of any writer. That's
3: right. That's
0: right. That's right. Thoughts go out. Some good you know, we're, everyone's sending you good thoughts on
3: Thoughts and prayers, Noah.
0: On the edit. Yeah. And Thanks, with that, no, oh, you're welcome. And with that, we will, uh, by the way, I, I, before we go, um, I'm still, I'm reeling at this uh, GDP number. 6.4% uh, um, means Even an upward that revision almost every, yeah.
1: Will not get anywhere remotely yeah. close to what we anticipated. Um, should I, be, this should be taken as a screening red siren warning crisis impending in this, in this White House. I don't know if they're equipped to see it because they've drank oh, their own Kool-Aid so much.
0: Uh, they're equipped to see it. There, because three months ago there were projections that this quarter would be a double digit quarter, Mm. double digit, like twelve percent, like that was, that was an
1: annualized rate. By the way, the the quarterly rate was one point six, I believe. What? Well, annualized growth, right? So we talk about three percent as that's annualized. Anyway, uh,
0: anyway, uh, it's, it's 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 staggering. Like every presumption that everybody has been making assumes a level of growth. By the way, the idea is that growth uh, was going to explode and then level off like next year uh, because you're, because you're getting back to normal, right? This is, you have this explosive growth to get the economy back to the size it was before the pandemic. And that that's the normal, that would be the equilibrium. Um, and then it's going to level off. Well, maybe it'll level off and we're going to be at a lower Price point than we were a lower you know a lower general uh, overall size of the economy than we were and then then we're really reaping the whirlwind because then you got these counter pressures which are got to do something to stimulate the actual economy uh, the private sector which is you know how you stimulate the private sector right tax cuts capital gains tax cuts all stuff like that or we've got to continue these direct government subventions to families and children and all this forever. And so you're going to have this giant, this fight is just going to keep going on and on and on.
1: What's the point of the stimulative effort, but to spur private economic activity, Uh, consumer spending partly drove this, but government spending was the rest. And if that's not stimulating the economy, then you can spend all the trillions you want it's not the spending that's the problem here. It's not the amount of spending that's the problem here. The problem here and and this is intuitive. Yeah. The problem is the virus and everything associated with it. And if and again they're talking again, they're trying to create this permanent condition. All these things can't last. They can't go By the on. way,
0: not necessarily. What did we say about the what did we say about the stimulus money, right? You 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 tallied it up, right? Where it's f-
1: 5 trillion Four point seven Okay, four point seven total pandemic right. relief efforts right. since twenty twenty. Right.
0: Well what do we say about that? Because a lot of that is done through borrowing, right? Fed is propping up things with borrowing, all of that. Classic rule is public investment crowds out private investment, competition for resources, and the Fed and government spending is an inefficient way to create economic growth. It's a sugar high. It doesn't have any... It it has immediate benefits. It does not have long-term ancillary benefits in terms of creating the things that make jobs and make things run. And maybe this is the evidence for that. I'm not enough of a macroeconomist to really diagnose that, but I assume we're going to hear about this from our friend David Bonson and others. It's is not a day that we have a David Monson read, but I will just say that I will be looking forward to seeing what he has to say about this today. And with that, we will call a halt to these proceedings, and uh, we will be back tomorrow without Christine. Without Christine, she's not going to be with us tomorrow. She's getting a well-deserved day off, so we will labor on without her. But for Christine and Noah and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the Candle Burning.